Our sermon text for today is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sent him on his own anim- then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend i will repay you when i come back which of these 3 do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers he said the one who showed him mercy and jesus said to him you go and do likewise. May God speak through the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Ivan. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you. I'm a little overwhelmed at the crowd, actually, this morning. It's great uh, for you to be here and celebrate with us this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church at Redeemer, uh, the city congregation of Redeemer. We need to start saying and distinguishing that. And so thanks for, uh, thanks for being with us. We continue this morning in a series in the Gospel of Luke. This whole month of January, we're going to be looking at a number of the parables that are unique to Luke's gospel, this obviously being one of them, this very familiar parable uh, that, we, that, that most, of us are, most of us know. Uh, and, and it's really worked its way even into the kind of cultural consciousness of our nation. If somebody stops to help change a tire on the side of the road or goes out of their way to be helpful on the nightly news, even they will call that person a what? A good Samaritan. And so uh, this is a very familiar story, and, uh, and the danger in that is that we can feel like we're so familiar with it that it can, it can um, no longer shock us the way that it should, and it really is meant to be a shocking story, and so I hope that we can look at this with fresh eyes this morning. The Bible has a word for the kind of love and help we would give to one another uh, that, would, that would lead to us being called a good Samaritan, and it's the word neighbor, and it's the call to neighboring. So you see this word come up. A number of times in the text, that is because it is the theme. This is a story about neighboring. Now, the first great command is to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is to love our neighbor as ourself. And this story is an illustration by Jesus of what it means for us to, to live with neighbor love towards one another. Now, I was tempted, I have to be honest with you, in my prep to change, to kind of throw away that word neighbor and use the word friend instead. Uh, but I think that does damage to the teaching here because friendship, at least how most of us experience it, is based upon enjoyment and similar interests. You're friends with people that you just naturally enjoy or that your lives are syncing up with one another. Your friend is the person 
that on a Friday night when there's nothing else to do, you call because you want to spend your free time with them, doing things that you enjoy together. The biblical word neighbor, which is the, the impetus of this text, is something different, something deeper, I think. And I really want to preserve it because a friend is someone you enjoy. But a neighbor, according to the Bible anyway, is somebody that you're obligated to. There's an obligation there. And so the relationship is based upon a covenant commitment and loyalty to one another. And that's the difference, I think, than with just normal friendship. So this word neighbor, we need to do some, some work to redeem it. Because as you see the sermon title, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Which, of course, if you're my age or older, you know what that is, don't you? Would you be mine? Right? That's Mr. Rogers. And so we think with this word neighbor, we get a picture of, a, of you know, like an elderly gentleman in a cardigan sweater, you know, with a sweet tone of voice talking very... Uh, but in reality, there's some redeeming of the word that we need to do. A neighbor, a better way of understanding what the Bible means by neighbor is if you can imagine yourself in, in the pioneer days, it didn't matter who your neighbor was. If, if you were living out in the woods all by yourself and somebody moved in 10 miles over the hill... You called them your neighbor, and you were excited they were there. Why? Because it literally was a matter of survival, life and death. You needed, you needed other people uh, to, to be living close to you and living near you because you literally couldn't survive without them. That's really, that's really, think that as we think about neighbor and neighboring this morning. We need to recover this word. And so, it's a text about gospel neighboring. And here's what we see, three things from this text that we really see that, that we can be instructed about gospel neighboring. We see first uh, the obstacle to it. Why is it so hard to neighbor one another like this? Secondly, the power for it. And then thirdly, the method of it. And so a text about gospel neighboring, those three points are the three points in the outline that I've given you. The obstacle to gospel neighboring, the power for gospel neighboring, and the method of gospel neighboring. All of that's in the text. But before we get too far, make this note, okay? I want you to see this. The parables are meant, they're unique, they're unique teaching style because they're meant to slip past your defense mechanisms that keep you and I, as we read the Bible, emotionally separated from the text, and then to go to work on your imagination. That's what a parable is intended to do, to slip past your defense mechanism that keeps you sep- separated emotionally from the text, and then to, to work on your imagination, to pull you in so that you try to find your place in the story. So for many, last week, you know, I know at my community group we did this, and most of the community groups, well, you know, which soil am I? The four soils, which one am I? Am I, am I like the thorny soil, or am I like the, the hard soil? We even talked about that around our dinner table. But this week, it's, it's really this story that Jesus tells, which, which, which character am I? I wonder which character I am. Now, every single one of us in the room, we read it and we think, surely I'm the Good Samaritan, right? Well, Maybe. Undoubtedly, that's what our lawyer would have thought of himself, but Jesus' story is in, it's constructed in such a way that he's taking this young man on a journey, and he's taking us on a similar journey as well. He first wants the lawyer and, our, and us to see, or he wants the lawyer to see himself in the two religious professionals first, and their colossal failure to love. But, but beyond that, he then wants him to see his true spiritual condition, that he is in reality like the dying man laying in the road, because only then... Only then can he become the Good Samaritan. That's the, that's, that's the journey that the story is designed to take us on as well, and I hope that's what we'll see as we work through this. So let's begin with the obstacle, the obstacle to gospel neighboring by looking at these religious professionals. Jesus means for us to imagine ourselves as these religious professionals, the priest and the Levite, who, when they encounter this, this man in the road, don't 
not only do they don't stop to help, but they, they intentionally walk to the other side of the road and pass by on the other side. Now, their problem is self-righteousness, and that, that is the obstacle to gospel neighboring that this story is intended to go after. We are prone to moralize, to moralize the story. Let me explain what I mean by that. We read a story like this, and we say, well, look at the Good Samaritan. Isn't he nice? Uh, now go, follow his example. After all, Jesus tells the story, and then at the very end, verse 37, if you look there, he says, you go and do likewise. So there's the point. There's the moral imperative. This, should, this leads to action. But the story, unfortunately, becomes too easily becomes a manual for mercy ministry or something along that nature. And of course it's that, but it's not only that. The lesson isn't. The lesson isn't. See, there's the priest and the Levite, and there's the Good Samaritan, and these guys are the bad guys, and he's the good guy, and so you should, you should really don't be like these guys. Be like, be like this person, the Good Samaritan, instead, amen, let's go home and go to lunch. I mean, that, if we're not careful, that's how this can become. But there's so much more to the story than that. Why do the priest and the Levite act this way? Why, why do we have such a hard time being like the Samaritan? See, that's the question. Those kinds of questions are the ones that the story is intended to answer. That's the answer we need, isn't it? We already know, most of us, that we should be kind and helpful to people who are hurting, so why don't we do it more? And if you moralize the story, you miss the chance to dig down into your heart. And that's what we want to do. This is a gospel story. This is a gospel story. And all of this happens when we take it out of context, when we rip the story that we love so much away from the encounter that Jesus has with the lawyer, which is the reason why he tells the story in the first place. So let's start there. Look at verse 25. A man comes to Jesus with a simple question. Teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, take that apart for just a minute. What does he call Jesus? See there? Teacher. Not, not master, not Lord, not one, of his, not one of... He doesn't use one of the Christological titles like Son of Man or Son of David that express genuine faith and, and spiritual understanding, he calls Jesus rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. That's what this man considers him, not a savior, because this man doesn't need saving. He asks, what shall I do? You see that? What shall I do? Because he believes that what matters most is his doing. The way to eternal life is doing. That's why he's so interested in the law. He believes that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's his doctrine. And he's one of the good people, fortunately. Salvation by doing. That's his theology. And when that's your theology, you better make sure you're busy with the right doing, right? So that's, that's his question. This is why he asks the question. He wants to know if he's doing the right things. And Jesus immediately, see, Jesus immediately goes to work to destroy his assumptions and to undermine them. He begins by, by asking this man who is a, an expert in the law. He asks him, well, well what, what's your reading of the law? How do you read the law? What's your summary of the law? And, and here the man gives a pretty standard answer, verse 27. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, okay, <laughs> stop with me and let's just think about this for a minute. So what, by his own words, what does the law demand? Well, first it demands that you love God with every second, every heartbeat, every thought, every act of your will, and... That beyond that, that you pursue the good of your neighbor with the same passion and intensity and speed that you pursue your own good. That you be just as happy for them when something good happens to them as you are for yourself when it happens to you. That you put your happiness inside of, of their happiness. So, love the Lord your God with everything, every second, every breath, every heartbeat, and love your neighbor like yourself, like that. That's it. That's all you, that, I mean, that's all you got to do. 
And Jesus says, do that, and you'll live. Now, the man, what's, what's fascinating about the man is that he's like, oh, okay. You know? Is Jesus saying he's right? He takes it that way. Of course not. And how do we know that Jesus is, is not just affirming this guy's theology? Because we know, I, I mean, I hope... I know from experience, I think we all probably do, and the Bible teaches no one loves God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind all the time. No one gives God every breath and every heartbeat, and no one takes care of their neighbor with the same passion and intensity and goodwill and speed with which they take care of themselves. No one. So there's hypocrisy in this man, and Jesus is trying to bring it to light. That's why he's allowing the conversation to go the way that it's going. And Luke reveals his heart. The man's heart, in verse 29, when he says, here's the guy's problem underneath the surface, the reason for this whole dialogue to begin with, verse 29, is that he desires to justify himself. In other words, he wants to do, he wants to do a righteousness that he can claim for himself so that he, that, that he can obey the law, that his righteousness would come from obeying the law. That would be how he would know he'd be right with God, that he'd be a good person, he'd go to heaven when he dies. He, want, he has to obey the law to do those things. The problem is, is he doesn't obey the law. The lawyers relying on the law for righteousness, ironically, is the very thing that makes it impossible for him to keep the law. Let me say that again. It's a big statement. The lawyers relying upon the law for righteousness actually makes it impossible for him to keep the law, and that's the irony. See, I'm of the opinion that his hypocrisy begins to dawn on him, and that's why the second question comes. So, what's the, well, teacher, what must I do? Well, how do you read the law and so forth? Well, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, well then, well, then who is my neighbor? What's he doing? You see the second question there, verse 39? Well, who, then who is my neighbor? See, I, I read it. I, I think he's backtracking. I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a okay, I, I'm starting, it's starting to dawn on me what's going on here. Love your neighbor as yourself has become suddenly very menacing to him, and so he wants to know the specifics. What are the rules? I, you know, everybody can't be my neighbor, so who do I have to love? And who is it okay for me to not love? And here we see a couple of the fatal flaws of moralism. This means a moralist. And the first is that moralism always leads to minimalism. Moralism always leads to minimalism. It's an iron- ironic, isn't it? That those who make a big deal out of the law end up making a much smaller deal out of it than they should. Typically, those who make a big deal out of following the rules end up picking a few of the rules to follow that they're really good at. They're usually the rules that they typically don't have any problem with. But the problem is, is then, they, and then they ignore everything else. There are groups in evangelical Christianity in America where, you, where it is perfectly acceptable to be as mean and nasty as you want to be as long as you don't dance or drink alcohol. Excuse me, you don't, let me say, where you don't drink alcohol or smoke or have sex because sex leads to dancing. As long as you don't do any of that, you're okay. Right? You're okay. In other words, it's absolutely, it's absolutely unacceptable to wear, to wear, it's unacceptable to wear skirts above the knees or to see a rated R movie, but you can be as impatient and rude and all of the things that love is not as you want to, and that's fine, and you'll probably be applauded for your moral standards. And so as the list of rules, and particularly rules beyond God's rules, that's what he's asking. He wants application. I know the Bible says my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And so he wants application. He wants to extend the rules beyond God's rules. And as the list of rules beyond God's rules become longer and longer, the law is being taken less and less seriously. That's the irony. 
It would be something like this. You, know, you go to a wedding. If you've been to a wedding recently, you know the vows that husbands and wives take to one another in wedding ceremonies are meant uh, in the language of them to expand our commitment to one another, not to confine it to a very narrow window of circumstances. Do you know what I mean? So if you, if you listen to vows, we say to one another for better or what? For richer or poorer in sickness and in health. In other words, we're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love you when I feel like it and when I don't. Now, can you imagine going to a wedding where the groom, when it comes time for him to do his vows, he kind of looks at the pastor and he says, now, pastor, uh, I need to know what the bare minimum is. What's the bare minimum that I'm required to do here? Because I'd like to commit to that. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet it's exactly, it's exactly what our lawyer's doing. Who's my neighbor? What's the bare minimum I can get away with? And that brings us to the second fatal flaw of moralism. And it's that moralism breeds self-righteousness. And self-righteousness destroys love. Law, righteousness, and love are incompatible because self-righteousness and love are incompatible. It's impossible to feel morally superior to somebody else. You're following the rules. They're not. You feel morally superior to them and look down on them. It's impossible to do that and have compassion the way the Good Samaritan does in the story. Because the word compassion means to suffer with. It means that you see yourself on the same level. You identify with one another and you see yourself as the same. And so if you rely on the law for, self, for righteousness, you'll never keep the law. Because the law says love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, the lawyer's wrong from the very start. He wants to know what the rules are because his goal is keeping the rules. His goal is not love. And if your main concern is to know and to keep the rules, you might succeed, but only to a certain degree. Chances are you'll not love other people very well, which means you failed. And it's illustrated in Jesus' parable by the religious professionals. So if you look at these guys, the priest, verse 31, in the Levite, verse 32, they come across this man laying half dead in the road, obviously needing help. And instead of moving toward the man and meeting his needs, they intentionally create distance. They walk to the other side and they pass by without stopping to help him. And, you know, it's just, it's gross, isn't it? I mean, it really is gross what these guys do. They, they not only ignore this half-dead man, they go out of their way to stay uninvolved. And so I, I joked with the first service, and this may or may not be true, if you catch me out of the corner of your eye in the grocery store and I'm, I'm high-tailing and I'm bolting in the opposite direction as fast as I possibly can, it might be that I saw you first, and I'm trying to avoid having a conversation. Introverts do that from time to time. Depends on what day of the week it is and what time and that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I, I'm an awesome pastor, right? I mean, look up the word pastor in the dictionary, and they have my name. I mean, they have my face right there as, a, as an illustration. And, you know, I joke to say, you know, I should probably not act that way, and uh, these men should not have acted the way they've acted either. Part of their job description, part of their job description, was to distribute alms to the poor and the needy in the temple. They've been in Jerusalem. It's what they've been doing. This is their, their work. And yet here they come across a situation where they're needed and they, they fail miserably. So why? Isn't that the question? Why? Why do these religious professionals act like this? And there are a few reasons in the text. The first is that there's, just, there's selfish, selfishness to deal with, isn't there? I mean, love is costly. Love like this is particularly costly. I mean, this man laying in the road here, he may be dead. And if that is true then to touch him or even to get near him would cause them to become what the Bible calls unclean. They would become unclean according to the law. They are traveling down, we're told, from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means they were coming home probably from two weeks of service in the temple in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites would live in Jericho. They'd travel up away from their families for two weeks for their 
kind of on-call status in the, in the temple, and now they're headed home after two weeks on call. If they become unclean on the journey home, they would not be able to go in and see their families. They would have to remain outside of the city walls with all of the other clean people for a week, one more week apart from their families. Not only that, in order to become clean, they would have to make the appropriate sacrifices to, to satisfy the law, which means there would be a lot of work that was involved, and it would be really, really expensive. And so to stop and to help, to stop and to help would have been extremely costly. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? I mean, it, it would just be, it's really hard. There, there are situations where this is really, really hard. And it's really, really costly. I mean, can you imagine, men, can you imagine the phone call home? Hey, honey, I know I've been gone for two weeks. I stopped to help a guy on the way home, and I'm going to be gone for another week. And I need you to go to the bank and clear out the savings account. And that, that's, that's the kind of thing. I mean, not to mention, so selfishness, but not to mention that this is a notoriously dangerous stretch of road. Even today, even in, in, in you know, the 21st century, bad things happen to travelers on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho all the time. And so you travel it with your, kind of your head on a swivel. You know, there, there, there's fear there too. And, and so we might say, we might say, this is, you know, in some sense, they may be, you know, they may be justified in doing this. I mean, an illustration from my own life. Thursday night, we had uh, projects due at school the next morning. And, you know, of course, when you're doing that and it's late at night and, and you need the printer to work, what happens to the printer at home? It doesn't work. Now, fortunately, I, leave two, I live two minutes from my office, and the printer here always works for some reason. And so I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll go to the church and I'll print these things out. 10.30 at night, I roll in. And sometimes if I do that at night, it always is a little uh, scary when you roll in and there's like a, a car just kind of parked with a person in it somewhere on the property. People do this. They park on the property. So I'm like, okay, that's fun. I run in really quick, lock the door really fast, do my thing, pray, say a quick prayer. Please let them be gone by the time I come out. I, peek, I even will like peek through the little hole in the door, make sure nobody's right out front, right on the side, get my car. The guy's still there. So then I'm like, oh, jeez. So I pull up next to him and say, you know, roll down my window, which probably, may, you know, that maybe that wasn't, unadv- uh, maybe that was unadvised. I don't know. But I, I said, is everything okay? He said, yeah, I'm just texting. Okay. All right, then, have a good night. And literally, before I could get the window back up and kind of head back, well, no, no, I- I'm really not okay. I'm really not okay. And here, I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> My son's got a homework assignment. He's waiting on me to get home with this so he can finish it. I might die and they'd never find my body. What do I, I mean, like, what do I, what do I do here? And so literally, it's these moments. These are the moments. These are the moments that this story is meant to capture. And so being, again, like I said, the encyclopedia version of a pastor, I said, okay, good night then. Have a good night. And took off home. <laughs> you know, did I miss a moment? I don't know. I don't know. But these are the hard moments. There's wisdom. See, we need wisdom here, of course. But the point is, the point the story is making is that there's selfishness and fear in us that we really do have to fight with and we have to overcome. But the point of the story is that the law, the law, the rules, having to follow the rules, having to do the right thing in order to earn eternal life, the law aggravates our natural selfishness and fear and keeps us from gospel neighboring. The law doesn't help. The law actually makes selfishness and fear worse. Because for this guy, the law was clear. For Jews, only other Jews were neighbors. Non-Jews were not. So it's a very clear category. If you were a Jew, then your Jewish brothers and sisters, they were your neighbors. But you weren't obligated to non-Jews the same way. That was the prevailing 
rule of the day. But the, but the law fails the, these religious professionals here because in the story, they have no way of knowing whether this man is a Jew or a non-Jew. He's just a man in need, and Jesus has done this on purpose. I mean, Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar and commentator, notes that the man in Jesus' story is beaten and stripped naked. Bailey says that it's an important feature of the story because without the clothing, it would have been impossible for the priest and the Levite to have identified the ethnicity of the half-dead man. Each nationality, each group would have their own distinctive dress. And so you could tell what, what nationality a person was just by the way they were dressed. But this man has been stripped of his clothes, and here are Bailey's words, thereby reducing him to a mere human being in need. And without the rules, what happens? Without the rules... They're paralyzed because following the rules is more important to them than simple acts of kindness. And and Jesus is saying they're too dependent upon the law. They're too dependent upon the law. They should be motivated by something else. Instead, there's there's selfishness and there's fear. And by the way, there's prejudice too. There's prejudice. They hate Samaritan. I mean, Jewish people hate Samaritan people. I mean, there's a rivalry between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And so this lawyer hates Samaritans. And by putting the Samaritan in the story, Jesus is trying to address the prejudice, too, that would keep us from, from, um, from obeying what the story would teach us. Uh, there's, a, there's wisdom literature from the day that was part of the, the Jewish oral tradition, which, which went like this. It said, if you do, good, if you do a good turn... Know for whom you're doing it. Do good to a devout man, but do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man, but give nothing to a godless one. Refuse him bread. And so the rules of the day for these men would, would, would have strictly charged them, only help the deserving. Only help the deserving. And that is why all of these things, selfishness and fear and prejudice and an over... Uh, an over-commitment to the rules, all of it creates the perfect storm where these guys really, really mess this up the way we often do too. But the doctrine is just this, that there's a natural inclination in all of us towards selfishness and fear that keeps us from love. Now, here's the thing. The law, the law, moralism, the law, the law actually incites our selfishness and fear. But only the gospel can destroy it. The law can make you feel guilty, and guilt is a powerful motivation, and it can make you love a little. But in, but in marriage and friendship and neighboring people in our city, it can only make you love a little, but not, not ever. It can't take you to the place the story says that we should go. Only the gospel can do that. So Jesus crafted the story so that these self-righteous, the self-righteous man, the lawyer, and self-righteous people like you and me, we would see ourselves in these religious professionals and stop consider our lives and just feel, ugh. Well, then what do you do? If Jesus caught you this morning, if you're, you know, if, you, if that's you, then probably your very first thought is probably something like this. Well, I've been like the priest and the Levite. I'm going to stop being like those guys, and I've got, I'm going to start being more like the Samaritan. But here's the thing. Let me pastor you for a minute. That's, that's the wrong, that's wrong. That, see, that's moralism. We moralize the story. Remember I said that. Moralism isn't the solution. Moralism is the obstacle. So don't, don't turn. If you're caught, don't turn right back to moralism. The gospel is the power for gospel neighboring. So before you can become like the Good Samaritan instead of like the priest and the Levite, don't, don't miss the step. I'm, I've been like these guys. I need to be more like him. Before you become like the Good Samaritan instead of like the priest and the Levite, you have to first come to see that in truth you are the dying man laying in the middle of the road, bloody and naked and in need of help. 
Now, Jesus could have told the story about a Samaritan lying half, half dead in the road, and it would have been challenging enough for this young lawyer. The lesson would have been, Samaritans whom you hate are your neighbors, and you should love them. Love your neighbors yourself means love even people you don't like, people who are unlike you, people who you disagree with, people who you hate. That would have been enough, but instead Jesus cast the Samaritan in what role? Do you see it? Where is the Samaritan in the story? He's the hero. And Jesus did this on purpose because the lawyer, like all of us, like every single one of us, I know, all of us who naturally think of ourselves as the heroes, we always cast ourselves in the role of the hero of our stories. But by by, by making the Samaritan the hero, Jesus made sure the lawyer had no other choice but to place himself elsewhere in the story. And that's in the middle of the road, half dead, and in need of mercy. And here's the question. Here's the question the story's meant to, to bring to our, to our lives. What if you, what if you were in the road? What if your life was ebbing out? What if you were bleeding to death? And what if your only hope, what if your only hope was an act of free grace to you, from an enemy who doesn't owe you any mercy, but in fact owes you the opposite? What if your life was dependent upon an act of neighbor love from someone who should despise you? Would you want grace? See, if Jesus had said, you're in the saddle, and your enemy is there in the ground, don't be a racist, don't be stingy, go and help him. He'd be saying, he'd be saying I'm giving you a rule, I'm giving you a do-it. And even if the man did it, he'd just be complying, but it wouldn't have changed his heart. But he's, Jesus is not giving this man a do-it. He's giving him a dynamic. He's saying, what if you were on the ground? And what if you had a radical experience of grace? And what if you were shockingly saved only by the mercy of someone who owes you nothing but rejection? Only then would you have the power to become a radical neighbor in your love for other people. And here are Tim Keller's words, who I'm borrowing from a bunch here. He says, you'll never be a neighbor until... You get a neighbor. You'll never radically neighbor others until you see how you've been neighbored. See, the lawyer's question at the beginning of the story is just, who's my neighbor? You see that? Who's my neighbor? That's the wrong question. And the parable's constructed to change the question. The question question isn't, who am I supposed to be a neighbor to like this? The question is, who has been a neighbor like me? Or, excuse me, the question is, who has been a neighbor like this to me? And the gospel of Jesus Christ says we all want to justify ourselves We all like to think of ourselves as the hero, but the truth is, if we were honest for one second, the truth is that we are not very heroic. We don't do the saving. We need the saving. Spiritually, at least, the truth is, despite all of our efforts, we mess up time and again and again. We blow it all the time. We can't ever seem to get it right. We seem to to screw things up more than we make them better. The truth is, life in this broken world that is full of evil and carrying the burden of our own guilt and brokenness has left us lying in the ditch. But Jesus Christ came into the world, and he came down our road, and he owes us nothing but rejection because we've declared ourselves his enemies, and yet he saw us, and he had compassion on us, and knowing that to be our neighbor would not just cause him to have to risk his life, but that it would cost him his life, He didn't just pass by. He got down. He came to us. He lifted us and put us into his place. He took upon himself our shame. He emptied his pockets to make sure that we were taken care of. Jesus is the good Samaritan. You see, when that comes home, 
when God's love for you in Christ begins to really dawn on you and you see that you were laying there half dead in the ditch despite all your best efforts at self-improvement and he didn't look upon you and turn aside and go the other way but he looked upon you and he came to you and he bound up your wounds and he took care of you though he owed you nothing though all of it was grace only then, only then, only when that begins to dawn can you become like him. Only then will you have the power to live towards others the way that he has lived towards you. So let me finish. I need to finish in the next few minutes with the method, the method of gospel neighboring that this ultimately calls us to. And there are just four things, four applications that I want to make to us as we, what does it mean for us to go and do likewise, as Jesus has said. And the first thing is, is that we, this story calls us to re-neighbor ourselves to people, people in need. We need to re-neighbor ourselves to people in need. The priest and the Levite saw this man and immediately moved themselves. They removed themselves from his space. The Samaritan sees him and has compassion. He goes to where he is. He makes up the space in between them, and that's gospel neighboring. The Samaritan sees. You see that? And all loving begins with seeing. We talk about this all the time around here. He feels compassion. In other words, he's, he's grieved by this man's pain. It grips his heart. He doesn't see him and feel nothing. He doesn't see him and say, stupid man, whatever he did to get himself in that situation, he probably deserves it. He didn't judge him. He feels compassion. It breaks his heart. He sees his pain. And he breaks his heart, and so he goes to him. The priest and the Levite, they move away. The Samaritan moves towards. He makes up the distance. He makes up the distance between them. And part of the brokenness of our city is that it is possible to go about your day-to-day life in this city, in Winter Haven, and never really intersect with the poor in the needy among us. The city allows for a great deal of distance to exist between the poor and the affluent. And if there's distance, then you can't see. And if you don't see, you probably shouldn't feel high enough about yourself that if you don't see, that you would still have compassion. If you don't see, you won't have compassion. And you see how this works. We've got to make up the distance. We've got to figure out how to solve this problem. We've got to move out of the periphery of the city and out of just the southwest portion and get to other parts of, get our lives at least to other parts of the city. We've got to get our lives in the neighborhoods in the city where the need is greatest. We need to go on, go on um, rides with the Winter Haven Police Department or call Brad Beatty and say, Brad, I want to hang out with you for two days so you can see and get, our, get into the neighborhoods in the parts of our city where the need is the greatest. We have to re-neighbor ourselves intentionally toward people in need. But secondly, we have to build relationships with people unlike us. That's another application I think that's here. Remember, Jesus used a Samaritan as the hero to highlight the racism of the lawyer. They hated one another. I mean, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. And so part of the brokenness of our city is that black and white and Hispanic and Haitian hardly ever come together. There are African-American churches, and then there are white churches. There are African-American parts of town, and then there are white parts of town. There are African-American pastoral associations, and then white pastoral associations. And it really grieves my heart. We need to repent. We need to repent and look around. I mean, I wish I could say different, but our church is broken in the sense that there is so little diversity and we need to fix it. We've got to figure out how to build relationships with people unlike us, unlike us politically, unlike us theologically, unlike us in the way we look and the color of our skin. That's part of what the text is calling us to. But third, re-neighbor ourselves to people in need and build relationships with people unlike us and meet, third, meet practical physical needs. The Samaritan went to the dying man, and he bound up his wounds, verse 34, and he poured on oil and wine. This is very specific language. The oil and the wine, the commentators tell us, were not standard, they were standard first aid remedies, but they were also the sacrificial elements in the temple worship. And the verb 
core there is from the language of worship, from the sacrifices. So the teachings is this. The priest and Levite have been in the temple for two weeks or whatever the case might be, all those days, and they've been offering all these sacrifices for the people. But on the way home, they fail to offer the true sacrifice. The Samaritan is the one that offers the true sacrifice. We read in community Bible reading this past week, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Jesus says. And so looking and having compassion and moving towards the person and diagnosing the problem and working to meet specific, practical, physical needs, that's gospel neighboring. And then lastly, we have to do it to our own hurt and our own disadvantage. I mean, think about what the Samaritan risks. He risks being jumped by whoever jumped the man in the road. He puts the man on his horse, which means what's he doing the rest of the way? He's walking. He takes him to an inn in Jericho and pays for his treatment. Now, if you want an American cultural equivalent, imagine a Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking into the room over the local saloon and staying the night to take care of him. What the Samaritan did was risky. It was dangerous. And so, I think, be careful. Be careful. If you really begin to look and feel compassion and move towards others and meet their needs, there's a price to pay. It's costly. So gospel neighboring is loving others at the expense of your own safety and your own comfort. Now, does this feel overwhelming? If it, I said, if it doesn't, do you have another 30 minutes? Let's do this again, okay? Can we go back? Maybe we need to do it again. Does it feel overwhelming? It should. Because what we're being called to here is impossible in our own strength. It's impossible. That's the point, isn't it? But that's the point. The man, the man thought it possible, and Jesus had to deconstruct that. It's impossible. But remember, Jesus Christ is not asking us to do something here that he is not willing to do. He's not asking us to do something he's not already done. We are to love others like this because it is exactly how we have been loved by him. Our love for one another is an echo of his love for us. In our sin and misery, God has looked upon us and loved us and come to us, bridging an infinite gap in Jesus Christ to meet our spiritual needs at the cost of his own life. He has impoverished himself to make us spiritually rich. And he has sent his spirit into our hearts to enable us to overcome our selfishness and fear so that we might heed him. When he says to us, as he does to our lawyer here in our story, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. So, Father, we would ask that you come and that you work in our hearts by faith to overcome our weakness and sin, where we are so prone to fall back into selfishness and fear and prejudice that is so natural to us that it cuts off our ability to love. It, it severs the, the, the cords of love. It, uh, it turns off the love valve in our hearts. The self-righteousness and the yearning after the law to be good and to, and to have a righteousness of our own. Uh, the way moralism uh, just destroys the work that you desire uh, to happen in us and the work that you desire to happen through us. And so we do repent and turn to you again in faith and ask that as we sing now, as we meditate upon your great love for us, that you would melt our hearts And that the result of coming to see the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, the result will be that we would would become people who possess the wisdom and the strength and the grace to move out into our city to love the way uh, that this Samaritan loved in our story. We need your help. 
And so we pray you come and do that as we, as we sing these last couple of songs together. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So to whatever road the Lord would call you to travel upon and whatever, whatever circumstances you might come upon on that road, know that uh, His grace and His power for you is, is more than capable of, of giving you all that you need. Uh, that you can really do the fight against your selfishness and fear and move out in neighbor love for other people. The way you do that is to receive these words because they are the promise of neighbor love from him to you. And so do that. Reach out and grab a hold of what he promises to be for you because it is the very strength that you need to go and do likewise, as Jesus said. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.